Good morning, everyone, and welcome to this Flint Briefing Call, where today we're going to talk about geopolitics in 2022. I'm Kieran Horwich, a partner here at Flint, uh, and I'm joined today by Sir Simon Fraser, former Permanent Secretary at the Foreign Office and Business Department, Sir Julian King, the UK's last EU Commissioner, and François-Joseph Chicham, a former French diplomat. Um, on our call today, we're going to look at what promises to be an eventful and interesting year for geopolitics. We'll cover the main strategic trends in international and European politics. Uh, we'll discuss the ongoing crisis in the, UK, the Ukraine sorry, and the wider implications. Um, and we'll also pick up on some of the economic themes that will influence the geopolitical landscape, such as the ongoing challenges posed by COVID, climate change and trade. And then finally, we'll discuss how the EU and the UK will try to navigate some of these challenges as they seek to exert influence on an international stage. As usual, we won't be taking any questions during the call and all the lines are muted. But there, if there is anything that you'd like us to pick up on afterwards, please do get in contact. So, Simon, I'll come to you first. Uh, 2022 promises to be uh, an unsettled year geopolitically. What are the main trends um, that you expect to see over the next 12 months? Okay, thank you, Kieran. Well, uh, I think the word fragmented is a very useful one because it sort of encapsulates what's happening. It's very difficult to apply sort of familiar analysis to the world because things are changing rapidly in unpredictable ways. Uh, but as a very sort of simple schema, I mean, I, th I think there are, there are three sort of patterns that I would like to just kick off with. The first is uh, the US-China competition and confrontation, which I think is the sort of defining geopolitical structure uh, in the world at the moment, and that is the context we're working in. The second is a sort of wider east-west tension, for want of a better way of describing it, that's emerging, which really is it's not really an ideological confrontation, but it's about the increasing confrontation between autocracies and democracies. But it's not actually purely east-west, because if you look at, for example, within Europe or at Turkey, you see that there are, uh, that even within these Western structures, you get these differences of governance approach emerging. Uh, and the third thing I'd like to identify is a sort of growing disparity and gap between the north and south. Uh, which is encapsulated and brought illuminated in vaccine policy and in our response to climate change. So just to unpack that a little bit more, if I can, um, the first within that, I think we see a very divided West at the moment. We see the ongoing weakening of US appetite for leadership in the world. Um, uh, and that was uh, demonstrated in America's further setback uh, in, during the Afghanistan withdrawal, which was pretty inglorious. Uh, Joe Biden has very big domestic problems to deal with. This year, he could lose control of Congress in the midterm elections. And he is ruling a country, governing a country which is deeply divided, um, with Donald Trump very much present in the wings and culture wars continuing. So America is challenged. Second point uh, Europe. Europe is very uncertain. We'll go into this further later. But we have uh, inflation, energy crisis. We have important elections in France this year. We have uncertainty politically in Italy. We have a new German government. Uh, and of course, we have the unresolved post-Brexit issues. And I think it's worth saying that although people don't like to refer to this in Europe, the impact of Brexit on the European Union, you know, is got to be played through and is very significant. So that's difficult for Europe, and it's manifested in a sort of lack of unity in foreign policy strategy 
which is allowing Russia, for example, to create opportunities, to exploit opportunities, to divide the Europeans as we are seeing and will come back to. Thirdly, just to touch finally on and go back to the US-China issue, because I do think despite the immediacy of the problem in Ukraine, the big structural, dominant structural issue is this rivalry between China and the US, and everything needs to be seen in that context. The US is maintaining a pretty hardline policy towards China, but whereas Donald Trump was pursuing that rather unilaterally, Joe Biden is concentrating on trying to develop networks of partnerships and alliance with other countries in relation to China, as we saw, for example, with the AUKUS initiative and with the development of the so-called Asia Quad. So it's a slightly different approach to a similar policy. And just finally on China itself, this is, of course, an important year for China. They're hosting the Beijing Winter Olympics starting later this week. President Xi wants to be confirmed for a third term in office at the end of the year. The economy isn't growing as fast as they might like. Uh, and there are, you know, significant issues around their zero COVID policy and the closure of China, which has economic and political consequences. Thanks, Simon. That was a really helpful overview. Julian, I, I want to come to you. Simon mentioned briefly there the, the Ukraine crisis and, and the immediacy of the, the tensions. It's something that we can't really ignore if, if you watch the news. Can you talk us through a bit about what some of the drivers are behind the tensions and, and how it might play out? Particularly, are we likely to see sanctions? Will the West remain united through this crisis? Uh, well, thanks. Uh, whatever Putin's um, territorial ambitions, I mean, his motives, I think, are, are pretty clear. Uh, he wants to destabilize Ukraine. He wants to pull it closer to Russia. He wants to have a kind of buffer zone between Russia uh, and the West. And he also is obviously seeking to boost Russia's influence. I mean, I think he hankers after a kind of US-Russian co-dominium on uh, European security, doing down uh, the EU and, and NATO. And he seems to think that he's got an opportunity to pursue these uh, objectives at the moment, because, as we all know, the US is focused on China, as Simon's just been saying, and wants basically a sort of stable relationship with Russia. What's it willing to do to have that stable relationship? And, of course, there's a period of flux in, in Europe, as Simon was saying. Um, Schultz coming in in Germany, Macron fighting his election, and flux in other places, Italy, the UK. So what's he going to do against that backdrop? Well, I think only Putin knows, but a number of serious analysts see a, a significant chance of um, a military uh, intervention. They analyze things like the, the state of the build-up. I mean, there's 120,000 troops, a lot of hardware. Uh, they've increased recently the supplies. So the, the, the frontline troops have got 25-plus days of supplies. They've brought in blood. I mean, it's, it, looks, it looks quite threatening. Uh, uh, so he could go into the Donbass. He could go into the northeast near Belarus, where quite a lot of exercises are going on. He could go into the southeast to build a land bridge to, to Crimea. What most of the analysts seem to agree, though, is that a major invasion is much less likely because it's very difficult to sustain and trying to hold territory in uh, unwelcome countries, unwelcoming countries has proven to be very difficult, including for Russia, of course. Equally, he could just continue to sit there and exert pressure through the deployment, pressure on Ukraine, 
pressure elsewhere in Belarus, Georgia, Nagorno-Karabakh. He's obviously interested in this zone of influence as he displayed through military intervention in support of allies in Kazakhstan just recently. And either way, this level of instability obviously has significant fallout. It has fallout for security, for energy, for trade and, and sanctions, as you said, and, and for Europe. So on the security side, uh, there are already um, uh, responses. Uh, there's quite interestingly, and I'm not sure it's necessarily what Putin intended. Uh, there are there are new commitments of of troop deployments uh, to um, uh, the Baltics, to Romania. Uh, there is uh, a heightened uh, awareness around uh, cyber risks. Uh, there's a debate in countries like Sweden and Finland about whether or not they might actually join NATO. But if there were to be an invasion, a redrawing of borders in Europe by force, that would obviously have major implications for, for NATO and for defence spending. On energy, again already, although uh, Russia are meeting their contractual obligations, there's been a spike in gas prices and that's been, that's been fanned and fueled by, by speculation. Uh, there's been a, a switch, particularly in, in Central Europe, um, uh, into or back into coal and oil, and that's going to have implications for the climate uh, ambitions. Uh, there's going to be a debate about, um, uh, about Nord Stream. Uh, uh, which will at the very least lead, I think, to further delay there. And perhaps longer term, we might see a wider debate about energy diversification. Uh, uh, President of the Commission has been reaching out to Ghatta and Azerbaijan, for instance, recently. But realistically, for the Central Europeans, for some time to come, some decades to come, they are going to be uh, uh, dependent to a degree on Russian gas to manage their energy transition. Trade and sanctions, well, I mean, there's already disruption to trade from Ukraine where they produce wheat, corn, etc. Uh, if there were to be... Um, uh, further sanctions. And there's some quite tense discussions going on at the moment between the US, the Europeans about how to form those sanctions. They would affect, I think, uh, finance, uh, some businesses and individuals, and uh, export controls. Uh, on finance, uh, there's tension around whether or not you include SWIFT. If the Europeans are, are, are doubtful because how would they pay Russia for their gas? On sanctions on businesses and individuals, the US and the UK appear to be quite keen to pursue that. The Europeans, the EU, somewhat less keen because they have different levels of proof legally to justify sanctions on individuals. Uh, export controls remains a bit of a blank um, box at the moment, but there's obviously some discussion going on there. Businesses will want to be thinking, of course, about their exposure to all of this and their compliance requirements. Uh, and lastly, but by no means least, this all has implications for Europe, as Simon was suggesting, uh, for EU solidarity. There are some tensions between uh, old Europe, France and Germany in particular, given their trade and energy dependence and the Central Europeans who have a much, uh, many of them, a much tougher view on, on Russia. Uh, there are implications for the EU's ambitions, particularly its um, ambitions to, to be a strategic player and a security player. Obviously, uh, the focus has been much more on NATO than on the EU recently. And if the worst happens, if there is an invasion, uh, there will be some quite significant implications for migration a movement of people. Uh, Ukrainians don't actually need visas. Uh, and there would be, I think, uh, some quite significant movements of people in Central Europe.
So a lot, a lot to be thinking about, some of it directly relevant to business. Thanks very much, Julian. Um, Simon, as Julian's set out very clearly there, the the complexities of the Ukrainian crisis are likely to continue to be the focus, um, at least for the next few weeks and months. But obviously, there are lots of other issues going on uh, in parallel. Would you talk to us a bit about some of these the economic and and other themes that that we know are happening on the international landscape and affecting the geopolitical landscape? Yes, absolutely. Well, I mean, the first thing to say is, of course, geopolitical political risk and uncertainty is a big issue for business, um, simply because, first of all, you know, it creates an uncertain environment, but also because for the specific reasons that Julian's alluded to, that it translates into specific consequences, potentially like sanctions or technology controls or investment constraints or trade restrictions, which directly affect business. So that's, you know, there's a direct mechanism for transmission into the life of business. But I, I wanted to to go beyond that and look uh, a bit more at this point that I made at the beginning, which is it's not only about east-west, but also north-south, because I think the growing disparity between the rich countries and the poorer countries is important as well. Uh, vaccine policy or the failings of international vaccine policy, I think, revealed the limits of international collaboration and will last year in a way that was quite uh, quite concerning. Uh, the, the developing world is still largely unvaccinated, and there could be a sting in the tail of that for, for all of us in the year ahead with new variants, for example. I mentioned also China's zero, vaccine, zero COVID strategy uh, and the political and economic consequences of that. Um, the other big issue that is sort of dividing or potentially dividing the North and the South as we go forward is climate. Uh, successfully addressing climate change requires a huge transfer of resources between rich countries and poor countries. And frankly, it's not really happening on the scale that's needed. I think there's a risk that the post-COP dynamic uh, after COP26 at the end of last year fades rapidly in a context of energy price rises and inflation, uh, which is going to make it much more difficult for governments to pursue climate-friendly policies. Their short-term priority is going to be on securing votes and energy supplies, not net zero. And I think business needs to think carefully about that and think about the long-term interests and priorities that are involved in the climate agenda going forward. Another point that's linked to, to that, in a way, is the crisis of global governance. I mean, business can't look really to international organizations and international cooperation to really solve some of these big cross-cutting problems. If you look at the WTO, the UN agencies, the WHO, they're all struggling with deliber- delivering consensus at the global, global level. So there's a weakness uh, in multilateral systems, which makes it difficult to dragoon national governments at a time when nationalism uh, is quite uh, strong in many parts of the world. Um, And just finally, extrapolating on the trade aspect of that, uh, the WTO does not appear to be recovering its uh, momentum. There was recently uh, a WTO informal uh, summit, which was designed to look at a number of issues Uh, for example, relating to medicines, intellectual property and fishing subsidies that didn't really make much progress. Um, uh, And so, uh, in fact, it hardly got noticed at all. So it doesn't convince us that the multilateral system is going to regather its forces very effectively in 2022. Thanks, Simon. 
Um, Francois-Joseph, I, I want to turn now to you uh, and to talk about the EU. I mean, it, it's come up a couple of times already on this call about how the EU will respond to the international landscape. Can you tell us a bit about what, what's happening within the EU at the moment and how's that affecting its ability to influence on the global stage? And, and particularly, how are France and Germany working together? Thanks. Yes. So I think the EU is in a period of transition, basically, while facing political uncertainties. It's embarking on a profound transformation of its economy. If you look at the environment and sustainability, for example, you have the implementation of the Fit for 55 package. On digital, you have the DSA, DMA, which is about creating a digital single market. And more generally, I think there is a push for more EU integration, including on new issues such as supply chain or defence. So there is a very ambitious agenda on these fronts, and the EU definitely wants to take some sort of leadership role uh, on these issues. But I think these ambitions very quickly collide with um, geopolitical realities. So if you look at CBAM, for example, the Carbon Border Adjustment Mechanism, uh, this causes issues with um, the EU's main trading partners. GAFAM regulation, this raises issues with the US. On defense integration, you have internal differences between EU member states, and that raises also questions about the role of NATO. So the EU is still looking for the right balance at the moment on these issues, and I think this could lead potentially to a reduction of the EU's ambitions. And I think this is why one of the key objectives of the French presidency of the Council of the EU, which runs until the end of June, beyond moving forward on the uh, legislative files that are on the table, such as the DSA and the DMA, is also about making the EU a more assertive player on the international stage to convince member states that the EU needs to defend its interests better using not just soft power, but also some kind of hard power. And I think trade is a very good example of that. If you look at the legislative uh, the legislations that are currently on the table and that you've got uh, a foreign subsidies control legislation and anti-coercion mechanism, this is all good news. But it's one thing to have the tools to defend the EU's interests. It's another to actually use them, to have the political will to use them. And I think it is that further step that the French presidency would like the EU to take. So this is all part of the French EU presidency objectives. It's a very political, very looking at the long term kind of presidency. Very political also internally for France, because uh, Europe is at the heart of Macron's political agenda for his re-election campaign. Um, and if there is one subject on which Macron hasn't moved, hasn't changed during the course of his first term, it is Europe and his European policy. And this will likely remain very high on the president's agenda if he is re-elected. So I think it's also important to note that while these um, economic and political transformations are happening, there is um, uh, political uncertainties internally in the, in the EU as well. Uh, as we said before, there is a new German government. Internally, the honeymoon between the uh, coalition partners seems to be um, fading away already. And there are difficulties on multiple fronts in, in Schultz's majority that will test his majority uh, over the next few months. Uh, but of course, Germany remains a major power in Europe. Um, and Olaf Scholz, we have to demonstrate that he can have the same kind of influence as Merkel's have. You have to, to, to demonstrate this over the next few months. So while Germany is, uh, Germany's government is trying to settle, uh, there will be elections in France in April. Uh, Macron is clearly, uh, will enter the race in a very strong position, but there, there are two things I would like to say about that. First thing is that populism is on the rise in France, particularly on the far right, um, which creates uncertainty. If you look at the two far right candidates at the moment in France, they gather together 30% of the electorate, so that's quite uh, important. But more importantly, um, if you, 
people need to look beyond the presidential elections, I think, and to look at what will happen during the parliamentary election in um, uh, in June. And, and and it is likely that any president, even if Macron is re-elected, will find it difficult to uh, gather a parliamentary majority. So that means probably um, uh, uh, make, having to make compromises, including on, including on policy with the parliamentary majority. So how does the EU move forward on this? I think to navigate all of these uncertainties, a lot will rest on the Franco-German relationship. The problem is that it is not, um, it's still largely untested, let's say. Uh, there are lots of commonalities between Macron and Scholz, but there are also structural problems between the two countries. So Scholz and Macron are close, for example, on EU integration, more so than, uh, than with Merkel before. Uh, on Russia and Ukraine, as we have seen, there, there is a good level of coordination which is, which, between the two countries. But there are also divergent interests and, uh, and structural problems, such as, for example, the debt issue, which will arise in the coming months. So there will be a debate about how to deal with public debt in Europe. And we can expect Germany to be quite strong on that. And uh, not only with France, by the way, but also with other southern European countries. Uh, on trade as well, France and Germany do not see eye to eye. To eye. Um, uh, and on defense cooperation, which is at the heart of the Franco-German relationship now, things are actually more difficult than they appear. So overall, I would say in 2022, uh, it's an important year for the EU. Lots going on uh, from a policy perspective, from a political point of view as well, with a lot of ambition and a lot of impact for business. Uh, but political uncertainties might get in the way of its ambitions. Thanks very much, Francois-Joseph. So, so Julian, if we then look on, on the other side of the channel to, to the UK, um, obviously it's a very complex landscape in the EU. Can the UK fare any better? What are the challenges they face in terms of global influence in 2022? Well, let's be fair. I think that last year there were a number of, of relative successes for the UK, the G7, COP26, AUKUS, trade deal with Australia, the integrated review. Not perfect, some of these things, but I think together they showed that the UK can still punch above its weight on foreign policy, as people say. This year is going to be harder. Uh, there are fewer marquee-style events. I mean, the UK will work with Germany on the G7 to take that agenda forward. It's, it's running the COP until it hands over to Egypt. Uh, but there's much more, much more uncertainty and instability, as we've been discussing. And I think that means that the UK will be looking for targets of opportunity on uh, Russia-Ukraine, uh, as we've been discussing. Uh, they are aligning, on the basis of a shared analysis, quite closely with the US. And you can see that they feel quite comfortable uh, doing that. Uh, on China, we may see something similar. Uh, there will be an attempt to build the global Britain mark and to show uh, as part of that the so-called benefits of, of Brexit, for example, on sanctions uh, with uh, Russia and possibly others, uh, on trade, where I think there will be a big push on India and more widely links with the Asia Pacific, on tech where I think the UK will try and uh, be at the forefront of building an alliance of like-minded, pro-innovation countries supporting the free flow of data, being uh, less precautionary and worrying slightly less about purist uh, approaches to, to privacy. Where the US and the EU are aligned, as Simon was saying at the, at the start of the discussion, there's less space to, to, to plough a furrow for the UK. Uh, but um, it, it will be looking for opportunities. That said, 
the UK is still aligned with the EU and European interests in a number of really important areas on Iran, uh, on climate. And I think um, in the UK, as elsewhere in Europe, there are some of the same questions about what happens in the US post-Biden. And lastly, and I think we have to be realistic about this, uh, how much time, political bandwidth, concerted investment uh, on foreign policy issues there can be will depend, as it always does, uh, on the domestic political situation. I mean, Liz Truss is, is building her reputation uh, as foreign secretary. Ben Wallace is doing a good job as defense secretary. But continued domestic turmoil would take away from the UK's impact internationally. Thanks very much, Julian. So, Simon, finally coming back to you to wrap up, we've covered a lot of ground today. Um, What are the key messages that that we should take away and and what does this all mean from a business perspective? Well, I mean, I think the key message is really where we started, that the international geopolitical, international political landscape is fragmented. Uh, It's difficult to read. uh, It's moving fast. And therefore, there is uncertainty, uh, and that is the context in which international economic activity and business activity is going to be carried on. And therefore, just three quick distillations of what we've been saying. Uh, First is that the geopolitical issues distill themselves into commercial risks through the, the actions of governments, as, for example, in sanctions and tariffs and the other things we've mentioned. Uh, There is a tendency to more state intervention in the international economic environment. Uh, There's concern, of course, about supply chains and things like that, which feeds into it. And there is a sort of mood of nationalism and competition between states. So that's the first point. The second point is that this affects big policy issues, the wider policy issues, where there is a big uh, interest for business, whether on trade, on climate, on international health, uh, the big global issues like that, where business needs to be engaged and where business can offer leadership. So we need to think very carefully about that and make sure that the relation between business and government is as healthy as possible and promoting international cooperation. Uh, And finally, third point, I mean, businesses really need to think about and understand these geopolitical trends because of the impact that they have on their operating environment. And we have noticed a pretty considerable uptick in the last couple of months uh, in the interest of our clients on these issues. Uh, And uh, I'm not surprised by that. And of course, we remain very ready to build on this uh, event to have further conversations with anybody who would like to do that. Thanks very much, Simon. Uh, And thank you also to Julian and Francois-Joseph and to everyone who's joined the call. Uh, We hope that you have found this a useful discussion. As ever, if you have any questions, do get in touch and let us know. Um, As Simon said, we always stand ready to support. Thanks very much. Have a good day and goodbye.